You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon. The abstract expressionist art movement in the 1940s and 50s was at best chauvinistic and at worst misogynistic. It was a movement unequivocally dominated by men. Women who were exploring abstract expressionism in their work were largely sidelined, sometimes allowed to be part of the men's exclusive clubs, but more than likely with the role of cooking for their male counterparts or assigned to taking membership fees. The sculptor Leela Katzen recalled that Hans Hoffman, one of the fathers of the movement and a leading educator of that era, gave a toast to art at a dinner party, declaring that only the men have the wings. One New York gallery owner of the time, Samuel Coots, who was influential in deciding whose art was going to be mainstream, pronounced that there would be no women artists in his gallery. Of course, the art world, like theatre, classical music and literature, has a long history of pushing women to the margins. So it is extra impressive that there were women who persisted. Indeed, there were many female abstract expressionist painters who were not only producing works every bit as rich and nuanced as the men, but who were also a primary influence for some of the male artists who would go on to become giants of 20th century art. This year, the Masters exhibit at Sega Browdis Gallery will feature 10 abstract expressionist painters, but the main focus will be on Mary Abbott, an artist who largely eschewed seeking credit for her influence or being heralded for her accomplishments in favour of what was of the highest importance to her, simply making art. And there is no one better placed to fill us in on the life and times of Mary Abbott and the other Abex painters who will grace the walls of the Sega Browdis Gallery this December, but the gallery's director and curator, Hannah Reeves. Welcome back to the show, Hannah. Hi, thanks for having me. So did I give a fair assessment of abstract expressionist era in saying that it was highly chauvinistic? Well, luckily for me, I didn't have to live and paint through it, but that sounds pretty accurate to me based on what I've read. Yeah. So um, maybe we should start by having you define what exactly is abstract expressionism. Well, I think a lot of the artists painting at the time probably wouldn't have called themselves abstract expressionists. And so that's something that we can, it's a term that we can apply or an umbrella um, that we can apply retrospectively. But the important piece is the expressive piece. So abstraction had existed for a long time and there are different forms of abstraction so there is abstraction of something that is still representational a la Picasso in cubism where there's a figure in there but you have to look a little harder it feels a little bit rearranged um, and so that's legitimately you know abstraction and some of the earliest and then there was early non-objective abstraction with a geometric focus and the idea that the artist has the right to pursue formal elements instead of just trying to recreate something that exists in nature. But the abstract expressionist painters pushed even beyond that notion of um, which you know was challenging to people through the 20th century and the end of the 19th century, the removal of subject matter. That's very challenging. Um, pushing past that and adding this layer of expression and, and basically saying with their work, I'm going to emote onto the canvas and I think that you my viewer will be able to take some sense of that away because there's some intrinsic note of expression housed in something that is made in an active and emotive state that was new 
So back in 2017, Sega Browder's Masters exhibit focused exclusively on women of surrealism and abstraction, not ABEX particularly. Mm -hmm. And in 2016, the Denver Art Museum curated an exhibition of women of abstract expressionism, which included two of the artists you have in this year's show, Mary Abbott and Pearl Fine. Do you have a sense of what it was like to be a female ABEX painter in the 1940s and 50s? Well, you know... You can tell from some of the photography that we have of the women who did get enough acclaim to at least have biographers, you know, by now. So we can we can read about Mary Abbott, we can read about Pearl Fine and Vivian Springford and Michael Corn West. And one little clue that we have um, is that they're all quite beautiful. So that's interesting. So you know that I, I think what that means is there are still probably quite a few names who are sidelined that there, it takes a certain level of privilege there all of these women also are white women you know so there is a piece in which they're not the most privileged like with the most heard voices in their culture but they do still have some modicum of privilege that even gets them to the recognition that they have. Um, so I think for these painters that we're talking about, that is a piece. That privilege is a piece. Like they had the time and the space and the luxury to paint, which is important to remember because it took a lot of persistence on the part of these women, and they really faced a lot of sexism and um, a lot of challenge, um, but at the same time, they, they did have this sort of the luxury to paint, and uh, Mary Abbott painted for seven decades as her career. So this is the sixth year for the Masters exhibit, and it features ten artists in total, but I know you're wanting to kind of center the exhibition around the works of Mary Abbott, who just died this past August, age mm-hmm. 98. None of the people you're exhibiting this year achieved household name status, but together they tell a story. So what is the story of this year's Masters exhibit? Mm -hmm. Well, we're enjoying centering the show around this kind of one headliner for us, um, Mary Abbott, because we have this unique opportunity to bring a pretty great retrospective of her work. And I always, when I go to an exhibit, I always find it incredibly moving and fascinating to see decades of someone's work and dozens of paintings by one person in one space because you just get this sense of their story and any one painting then becomes yes it's its own has its own sense of emotion and expression and and meaning but it becomes kind of a point on a timeline and I always find that fascinating so I'm very excited to get to do that it's not just the snapshot that happens tightly in the 40s and 50s although a lot of the major pieces and the advent of abstract expressionism does happen then but this body of work that we have from Abbott spans from 1945 to 2003, actually. So I think you get this great sense of how her work developed and what abstraction meant to her over these decades and what it meant to persist and keep painting and keep learning and growing as an artist. And I think that is just going to be very beautiful on its own. Um, But because we're able to sort of tell the story over decades of the progression of the work of Mary Abbott, we've actually tried to provide some other points from the stories of these other nine artists that kind of deal in that same narrative piece. And so rather than saying like, 
these are all works, you know, that happened between 1945 and 1955, and this is about abstract expressionism, which is actually what we did last year. We're saying, here are these people whose work progressed, and even, you know, we only have a couple of pieces by Fritz Bultmann, or one really lovely piece by Arthur Osfer, but this is a person who progressed from making representational work, or maybe like regionalist murals, through to some non-objective work and some abstraction through Abex, and then a lot of times, too, there's this other piece that we didn't hear last year when we were telling the story mostly of Abex, the other pieces, and then here's how they developed their manner of abstraction through the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, and here's what it continued to grow into. And a lot of times, one artist will keep painting in an abstract and expressive way, but it looks and is differently, looks different, is differently meaningful by the 1980s. One important point that you ask us to remember is that no artist is defined simply by one movement and one era. And this show talks to that, does it? Can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that, this idea that, you know, you have this 70-year career yeah. and everybody says, oh, you're this. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's such a funny thing to, like, feel yourself doing. I have done it so many times at museums and then even in our own gallery when we did Women of Surrealism and Abstraction, we started out our research and even just our conversation talking about Leonor Feeney as a surrealist with a capital S. And then you just, you realize, like, well, this woman painted for almost 80 years and she was a contemporary painter. By the time she died in the late 90s, she was a very, very informed, practiced contemporary painter. So it doesn't make sense to think of that person as somebody who's trapped in the 1920s in her case. And yeah, there may be like a heyday of a movement or there may be like a very important moment in time where ideas coalesce, like especially in this case with Abex in New York, immediately post-World War II. But that doesn't freeze those artists in place, especially, well, and this, you know, Abex is a little complicated because Jackson Pollock does get kind of frozen in place when he passes away so young. So it's kind of like, then now he is forever that guy that age who makes that kind of painting. But the rest of these people kept painting for decades and kept developing their work. So I like just shifting the way that we talk about it just a little bit to remind people that these are human beings, and especially with Mary Abbott having just passed away this year, and a lot of these artists living in to the 21st century and painting into the 21st century. So how did you amass such a huge amount of Mary Abbott work for this retrospective? Well, we, just like we always do with the master's exhibit, we work with dealers all over the country. And so we know the person who represents the estate of Mary Abbott and actually was representing her work before she passed away for several decades and was a good friend of hers. And so bringing a collection of work is a matter of talking with that person. And so f- over different special exhibits, including the April special exhibits, putting those collections together, it is, it's quite different than our monthly exhibits where we're working with living artists. They may be all over the world, but we're getting the work directly from the artists and we're creating a contract directly with the artist. And these are... It works for the special exhibits are things that we're bringing through dealers who've put a lot of time and research into gathering them up. And so it's a matter of finding and convincing the right person. <laughs> so so most of these do come from um, from one uh, dealer and gallery. And then there are um, there are a few pieces that actually are sourced by Melissa Williams, who's right here in town, too, who's somebody that we work with. Tell us a little about Mary Abbott. Who was she as a painter? I think of her, like I always think of the word persistence, which I noticed you, I think you had it in a note. And I love that quality 
in an artist, so she seems persistent. But at the same time, she, you know, when you have the opportunity to look at a lot of her work at once or like in one session, you realize that she really didn't reinvent the wheel. And even in her own work, she really didn't do a lot of reiteration. And so we've had this this really fun privilege of looking at the estates of several of these mid-century artists now just over the years. Sometimes you see you know, you're seeing that you basically fry your brain looking at like 3,000 paintings in a row and kind of deciding, okay, if we're going to bring 60 to Columbia, you know. And that process has looked so different with other artists than it did with Mary Abbott. So a lot of times the work in an estate is coming kind of in like a stack that was stored somewhere and there might be a whole session's worth or a month's worth or a, a body of works worth that is dealing with like the same ideas, the same media and the same veins, which a lot of artists we know and like we, a lot of us do that, you know, you kind of work on one note for a while. And so those pieces that might have been sketches, some of them signed do go into the estate and they become available whereas they might not have been exhibited before or the artist maybe took edited you know one of those and it became like a larger painting looking through Abbott's work even looking through stacks of unframed works on paper that have never been shown you see a unique note in every piece and you see these subtle palette shifts in every piece and you see these these very subtle media changes like there's a combination of oil paint and in this painting which the artist maybe has numbered 54 there's marker and then in this very next painting which the artist has numbered 55 like presumably the next thing she made in the studio there's like similar palette and there's oil paint and then there's a mark made with charcoal you know so there's this variety that you see and she's always so attentive to like variety of mark making and a visual sense of texture great balance to composition and so you see those recurring and you start to recognize it but every piece is so unique. I mean, it's just, it's really an experience to see a lot of her work in one place. And she was very influenced by nature and the natural world. So she'd been ill as a child. She'd been confined inside for a couple of years. And then, and she missed being outside. She missed playing in nature. And so nature has really dominated, I guess the colors have dominated mm -hmm. her work. She ended up marrying a businessman and living between the Virgin Islands and Haiti, as well as in America. And again, the, mm -hmm. the colors of the tropics and the jungle really influenced her work. Mm -hmm. So you, do you see that? Do you see those colors, those kind of natural colors come through in her work? Yeah, I do. And actually, I love, I read um, this piece of an interview with her where she says she calls herself simple for loving the color yellow. Did you read that? Did and the, read that? the person with her says, why would you say that? And she says, oh, yellow is just so easy. It's very simple. Now, green, people think that they see green all the time, but it's actually such complex color mixing happens in the variety of things that people think are green in nature. It's so complex and, and you know, robust and moody and yellow is just, you know, kind of like it's out of the tube, you know, and she was like annoyed with herself for loving yellow. But I love the way she talks about that. And clearly she's spending a lot of time like absorbing these greens and thinking about the greens. So whilst in the 1940s and 50s her male contemporaries were busy building their names and their egos, Mary worked more from the perspective that the ideas and practices they were all exploring were part of a common consciousness, that together they were part of a larger phenomenon. Talk a little about this philosophy of the collective and the hive mind and, and maybe how that affected her career. Well, you know, a lot of the New York School of Abstract Expressionists ended 
up on Long Island by like the late 50s. A lot of them were neighbors in East Hampton by the end of the 50s. Actually, I think maybe five of the people on our roster this year were actually kind of neighbors. Um, And so that geographical proximity, both when they were in New York, like on 8th and 9th Street, keeping their studios so nearby, and then once they sort of created this little mini colony in the Hamptons, it really seemed to feed this sense of um, mutual influence. And you can see that even though people don't do a good job talking about how women influenced men, because people always talk about, oh, of course, de Kooning influences, you know, like it's people are so good at, do you know, in the, it's sorry, diatribe, but on the <laughs> plaque in the St. Louis Art Museum next to the beautiful big Frankenthaler in the very first sentence, Jackson Pollock's name is uttered in a description of Helen Frankenthaler. It's like we do so, we do such a good job of thinking about you know the influence going that way. But but undeniably people are absorbing things from each other whether they even mean to or not. And we don't get as many maybe I don't know maybe that's what artist residencies are about and like studio situations in grad school. I guess that's my closest experience. It seems like maybe they're isn't as great a sense of the need for physical proximity just because we feel like we have access to each other all over the world all the time, which we do. But it's got to mean something different when you're working with like the material and the materiality of the paint to be right in front of it or to share a studio space with someone. That's got to make a difference. And talking about de Kooning, she was very close to de Kooning. And in fact, if you talk about de Kooning, you should say that really his work was influenced by her. So mm-hmm. Mary Abbott was influential on his work, maybe rather than vice versa. But I guess that doesn't get pointed out very often. Right. We just, yeah, it just doesn't get said that way. You know, probably it went both ways. Like people are around each other. It happens to us. Now, and even with less access to each other, just like seeing the work of people, I think, you know, you'll hear somebody say, oh, that reminds me of this. And you're like, damn it, I had seen that. I guess, okay, you know, there's like a different, um, there's a different tone to it now, though, where it's like, you maybe don't want to be, or it's like taboo to have been influenced. But I think they embraced it, right? Like they, it meant something that they were all creating this paradigm shift together and maybe it took all of those people we kind of talked about that last year with the show that was really about abstract expressionism um maybe it sort of created some safety in an otherwise kind of treacherous you know step outside of the normal bounds of saleable art as I read through the various biographies of the artists you have in the show, several times I came across reference to what is described as an anti-school that was founded in 1948 and was called, rather strangely, the subject of the artist school. Mary Abbott went there and another artist in the show, Fritz Bultmann, attended. And I wondered what more you could tell us about that and maybe how it affected Mary's philosophy of art. Do you know about the, the subject you of the know, artist school? I don't. I, I have come across the name of it and that's something that I, I promise I will do more research showtime before I open the exhibit but I've been curious too and I don't I don't know that much more about it do you have did you find some well it was it was only existed for a year and then they went out of business they didn't have any money they were the idea was to promote avant-garde art especially abstract expressionism the founders were William Badziotis, I can't pronounce his name, David Hare, Robert Motherwell, Barnett Newman, and Mark Rothko. So they had this this little school. They had lectures that were open to the public. They had big speakers that came in. They were well attended, but they just didn't really make any money. So it folded in the spring of 1949, and it gave rise to something called the club, which was 
another avant-garde collective or gathering point. And what I read about Mary Abbott was that it was there that she said she learned to draw imagination, this idea of uh, I'm not painting flowers, I'm painting flowering, or as another of the artists yeah. uh, in the show said, I think it was Sam Feinstein said, I'm, we don't paint flowers, we paint flowering. So this idea of emoting onto the page the yeah, experience of nature in that description <laughs> yeah. oh that's really wonderful it also makes me think about black mountain college and sort of an america that was ripe for some experimental thinking about art that then gave rise to not just action painting but performance art and happenings and fluxus and um or versions of it in right. the u.s and basically like bringing activity and then a sense of time into art so the club was very much male-dominated, but they did say Elaine de Kooning was a member, Mary Abbott, Pearl Fine was a member, mm -hmm. but Mary Abbott's job was to take the membership fees. I didn't actually know that. That's <laughs> like infuriating, right. but not surprising. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about maybe Pearl Fine. Of her work, she said, my paintings deal not in definition, but rather with the art of evocation and suggestion, mm -hmm. and which I guess is true really of all abstract expressionism, mm -hmm. would you say? Yeah, yeah, she fits, she fits right in in that way. What do we know about her? You know, her, when I think about her work and the body of work that we looked through and what we were able to bring, I think about it being more shape-based. And so when you when you kind of boil down to the formal elements of line, shape, color, value, and texture, shape is like essential in Fine's work, which gives it kind of a distinctive feel among the group of, you know, the work of all of her peers, um, which is kind of interesting. And then I think we don't often think of of shape as expressive, like line can be expressive. It's real easy to think about a scribbly line and like the which you hate. I do hate <laughs> scribbly lines. It's true. And um, you know the the implication of activity of like what your arm had to do to scribble something big or what your fingers had to do to scribble something small. Like there's an implied activity in line, but shape it's like a little bit harder to think about how you know expression is attached uh, for me. And yet when you see the collages of Profine and and these compositions of shapes, you do you do get a sense of movement and of mood, definitely. Yet, surely we see the world more in shapes than in lines. Yeah, and a lot of artists work very shape-based now, and especially like in representational work, we're find the shapes first, like find the big shapes, find the values, line is last, you know, you don't start drawing eyelashes before you have like the shadows of the skull, you know, so in some ways it's maybe more natural, but we got very line happy there for a while. Um, so her, I feel like her work is kind of a counterpoint to all of the expressive line and also just the impasto and, and like the focus on paint of this era where we're mostly focused um, because she's doing some collage and the work is flatter and more shaped based, but it's still really moody and expressive. Now, Pearl had the advantage of she had a, one of her sponsors was Baroness Hilo Ribey, who uh -huh. was the founder of the Guggenheim Museum. Did she have the same kind of obscurity as Mary Abbott or was Pearl Fine more, more available to people? Well, it made a big difference to be in the Guggenheim collection and Hilo Ribey was just an enormous influence on you know, what would become kind of the museum world, you know, was a, Rebe was kind of a private 
curator for Solomon Guggenheim before the Guggenheim Foundation was even formed and was just so instrumental in putting together the start of that collection. And this is right in an era when a lot of those museums were forming. So she's connected, this curator is connected with all of the collectors and it matters if she knows your name. And she's the reason why Kandinsky became famous in the United States. She's the reason why Jackson Pollock became famous, you know. So for Fine to have been recognized, especially as, and like, remarkably, though Rebe was a woman, she wasn't a great champion of women. (laughs) She mostly championed the men around her. And she was a painter, too. She didn't even push her own painting. You know, so, I mean, that's kind of just, she comes from a previous generation, I think, than the the Avex painters. But for Fine to have been recognized and brought into the fold by Rebe, I think made a huge difference for her during her Another of the artists that I'm curious about that you have on the list is Fritz Bultmann. He ran in the same avant-garde circles as Abbott, Fine, Motherwell, Rothko, de Kooning. But despite being a man, he never really made it into that stratospheric echelon of Rothko and Pollock, etc. Mm-hmm. What's his story? You know, I think about Boltman and kind of comparably to Robert Natkin. There are a few of these men, and actually even um, John Weimer, who's from Missouri, who's part of this exhibit. Um, they have kind of related stories where they're pursuing life as an artist and, and they sort of like take the, f- there's like the first step up what seems like it's going to be a big staircase. And it's the same step as Pollock and Klein and Motherwell and Roth and a lot of them were in the same place at the same time. A lot of them studied with Hans Hoffman and kind of had, so they had those first steps together. And so you expect them all to have this rise together and they just don't. So I think some of them just pursued careers, like along a lot of these people on the roster, actually more than half of the people on the roster were professors as well. And so they just kind of pursued a career and they quietly but persistently spread the ideas it's not I don't know it's not as uh, shiny <laughs> as um, being in like the top gallery and kind of having all the attention of the promoters but it does seem like it comes down to kind of who's promoting you at some point maybe I mean Hans Hoffman had said of Bultmann that he considered him the most brilliant of all the many students I have had he must be considered today the most outstanding the most sincere and the most disciplined young artist of the entire generation and this in the international sense So it seems like he had these great promoters. He was incredibly talented. Maybe he just didn't have the same ego. Is it down to ego? That's a thought. Yeah, no, that's an idea. (laughs) Maybe it takes a combination of ego and like a really good promoter and marketing team. (laughs) So moving away from the East Coast, you mentioned John Wehmer and Melissa Williams, who's Mm -hmm. here locally in town. And he was a St. Louis-based artist. And the reemergence of his early work is really thanks to Melissa Williams. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about Weimer and his story. I mean, he's another one of those people who's just kind of willing to be quietly brilliant. And maybe it is a lack of ego. And I haven't met him yet. I hope to um, in the coming few weeks. I hope that that works out because he's, he's still living in St. Louis. So like many of these artists and like many of the men of his era served in World War II, he had begun. Um, some study at Washington University beforehand, came back and was able to resume study in art. And that's the story of half, you know, again, of, of these folks. But he really found kind of an artistic home and a community at Washington University. And, you know, in the 50s, St. Louis was 
there was a hub there that people don't quite realize. The St. Louis Art Museum um, was a major institution and was able to support artists through exhibitions and awards and even just like the presence, you know, within an art community. Um, Washington University was an incredible program that really drew faculty and students. And so there was a sense of community there. And there were major collectors in St. Louis who were putting their money where their mouth was. So there really was this hub. And he was right in the middle of it. So he, he was, you know, really able to be um, successful painter, if not, you know, an East Coast glossy Jackson Pollock figure. And so he taught for years and he painted for decades and he largely stored his paintings away until Melissa convinced him to bring me back out into the light a few years ago. <laughs> and so. organized the show and, mm-hmm. and he, he was he was back, mm-hmm. which is exciting. And he's 92 now, I think. Mm-hmm. So you're hoping he'll come down. For the I don't know if he'll be able to come. I would love it. I hope that I get to meet him at some point. And presumably, just quickly before we end, you have various education components of this year's mm-hmm. exhibit. What have you got coming up? Well, I have for educators in town, this is a little bit new, but I have education days on two days in December. And so it's um, December 13th and then December 17th. Um, I'm devoting the days to classroom tours. So if you think you might want to schedule a field trip, those are the days that are options. We can arrange the times. We can do guided tours of any length. And so you can email me, hannah at sagerbroadestgallery.com, and we can set up educational visits. Kind of excited to consolidate those and really more widely invite people to do those. We have a guided tour on Slow Art Saturday on December 7th. Thank you. The tour will start at 11.30 a.m. We'll walk people through the exhibit and a number of other events surrounding the Master's exhibit as well, which you can find on our website, sagerbroadestgallery.com. Thank you so much. My guest today has been Hannah Reeves, Director and Curator for the Sago Browdis Gallery. The sixth annual Master's exhibit opens at Sago Browdis on Friday the 6th of December and will stay on view you through December the 28th. Thank you as always, Hannah. Thank you so much. Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts. Before I start, I do want to remind people that next Tuesday is Giving Tuesday, December the 3rd. And I'm very excited that we have matching donations of $2,500 already. So the first $2,500 that are donated next Tuesday will be matched by a slew of anonymous donors. So tell your friends and uh, do make a donation. Could just be $10 to KOPN next Tuesday. On with the show. There is so much to be thankful for in Colombia, and from my point of view at least, it is the fabulously vibrant art scene and the awesomely talented people who inhabit it, which makes life in this city so rich. From theatrical actors to literary stars, visual artists to musicians and comedy improvisers to singers, this town is chock a block with people who seem like they should be really, really famous. On occasion, these people coalesce into something even bigger, pooling their collective talents to create an art event that gives back to the community and in so doing, making the love we have for the arts glow a little brighter. And one of these events is fast approaching. Cabaret for a Cause is back on December the 9th for an evening called A Very Vintage Christmas. And I am delighted to welcome back three of Colombia's most mellifluous songbirds to the show. Audra Sergal, <laughs> Rashara Knight and Meredith Musgrove Shaw. Lovely to see you all, ladies. Hello. Now, as it's the day after Thanksgiving, and I'm going to assume we all ate more than we do on a usual Thursday, I'm wondering what your rules are about about singing on a full stomach. <laughs> <laughs> the more the merrier. The muchiness. 
Warm up, you guys. <laughs> I never have a problem singing after food. I mean, sometimes I've sung for food, so I don't really have. <laughs> right. <laughs> Often it's included in the pain. Right? Yes. <laughs> does it make a difference? Does it like does it support the diaphragm in a good way or a bad way if your if your tummy's full of turkey and potatoes? One of my opera singer friends says that, that she likes to just go out and get like a big pasta dinner before she goes on. Wow. And another one like starves herself, so who knows? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and then when you get together for family events, is there pressure on you to sing? Do people say, Oh, Audra, pull up the piano? Piano and knock out a tune for us, or are they like, Audra, put the way the piano, please be quiet. I did want to have a sing along last night, but I've been accused of wanting too much Christmas on Thanksgiving. You know, so I want Christmas. Like the second that Thanksgiving is here, I'm like, and now we sing Christmas music. They may ask me to put it away. <laughs> when you have friends over, I mean, I'm sure that they are all also performers. So, like, who gets the spotlight? Is it like we all want to perform? Um, Shara. Shara. <laughs> We all just defer, right? We just humbly bow. (laughs) Well, usually there's a lot of wine involved, and then it's like, Shara! (laughs) And does the singing get better after wine? In my mind, it does. does. Sounds terrific. I'm Mariah Carey after a couple of glasses of wine. (laughs) There are no recordings to prove either way. So Cabaret for a Cause is coming up, and you have once again gathered together a fabulous group of vocalists. Mm -hmm. Does anyone ever say no? to you, Audra? <laughs> yes. yes. I do. Yes. Well, you know, I just recently went through a divorce, so yes. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, it wow. wasn't a bad thing. Oh, come on. Okay, no. Um, I'm really grateful that so many people are committed to the different causes we raise money for. So. I imagine that the, the bigger danger is that, you know, you're on the order of bus and you're driving past all these bus stops full of people that want to be on the order of bus. And you're like, sorry, fool, can't take you. You have to wait for the next bus to come along. I want an order of bus now. <laughs> but, but that's that's true. That she so won't admit true. to that, but that's a real thing. Okay. Right. Yeah. Audra's definitely one of the leaders in the community that oh. I was, I've just recently in the last couple of years started performing with you, but for years had known and been like, how do I get to an event where she is? and get to know her better and get on the Audra bus. Mm-hmm. I didn't know there was a bus. I'm so excited about it. Is. I definitely, I want a tour guide. I want some things on the bus. Okay. Always have a restroom. Always get a restroom <laughs> on the bus. <laughs> a bar right. is good on the bus. Yes. I have a friend that has a bus and she puts uh, on the bus, the imaginary bus, she puts on people that she doesn't like. So if a politician's been bad, she puts them on the bus. And if they've been really bad, she makes them clean the toilet. Just in a head. Okay. I, I like that. So there's a good order order bus and then there's the bad people bus right. so if anyone is naughty on the order bus you can just make them get off at the next stop and get on the, uh, <laughs> get on the bad bus <laughs> so Rashara I suspect that that is true of you too that you have so many opportunities that come along how do you decide what to take do you say no to things I'm an awful person and say no to I don't say no to anything <laughs> like and, and I really and I really and I really should sometimes I have a bad habit of putting too many things on my plate just because you know the opportunities come up and I'm like yes I want to be a part of that how do I get a part of all the things um, and sometimes I stretch myself too then so I that's no is a word that I need to work on for the new year <laughs> I hope you don't work on it too hard because it's fun to see you at so many things right. I keep saying yes Meredith I know you've had a really busy year with some major medical issues in your family plus this work 
and there's children. Does singing and performing keep you centered when life becomes chaotic? It really does. So I'm also trying to, like, in addition to, you know, the full-time job, husband with some medical stuff, kids, and I'm trying to finish my doctorate. And so I end up saying no. Like, I don't get to do all the things I want to do. And Columbia is terrific because we have so many things for local performers to do. Um, But it definitely, singing with the Cabaret for a Cause has been one of those terrific experiences that keeps me grounded in a lot of different ways. And I also have just some friends that I get together with and we do like a guitar circle. And during particularly rough times this year has really been the thing that has helped me kind of you move through to the next thing. And so um, definitely, definitely mm-hmm. grateful for all the music in Columbia. Or well, to take us back to how Cabaret for a Cause got started. Well, without being horribly political, it was around the time that Trump was really starting to have all of this immigration stuff really come to the forefront of his administration and all of the, the ways that his policies were affecting children. And we knew we were doing this show, and it was kind of a friend of mine had just said, I would love to do a show, but I don't have six weeks to commit to a rehearsal process. And I'm like, I don't either. And I would love to do a show too. Like, I, I would love to do more musical theater in that regard but whenever I can whenever I conduct or whenever I play for that it's such an intensive process that I ended up having to not be able to teach in my studio and not be able to gig and that kind of thing so she had mentioned that and I'm like why don't we get a group of people together who just want to sing and that way no one has to do the heavy work we can all just come in and do a little bit like a, kind of like a potluck you know what I mean and so that potpourri if you will kind of became the idea where no one had to work too hard but we could do something and then we were like let's do it for a good cause because it's just been such a shit show watching so much <laughs> 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 I'm so sorry <laughs> sorry Kopian listeners Listeners, um, but it's been it's been such a problem. <laughs> uh, it's just been such a hard time for so many people that getting money to someone would be great. So that's why we decided to do that, and then we named it something because we decided we liked to do it and we wanted to do it again. So the first one was for City of Refuge, it I think. was, and then who is this one for this time? This is for the Blind Boom Piano Concert Series, which is run out of the Boone Historical Society and and Culture Center. And the also for Trips Children's Theater, they're going to have a scholarship in the late Josh Frederick's name, and we wanted to give money to that. Tell us a little about Josh Frederick. Josh was a wonderful human that recently passed due to health conditions with his diabetes, and he was a musical theater kid in Columbia who we all watched grow up and loved very much. And he really, I, I met him and worked with him over at Trips with Joe Womack. And so I know a lot of people in our cast have worked with him either as being their voice teacher or being a castmate or being a friend or do we just, the musical theater community is tight knit. And so we all kind of know him. And I thought that would be a nice thing we'd all want to give money to, to see a kid who wants to start out in theater, maybe doesn't have the resources and Jill can, there'll be a scholarship there waiting for that. That so next star. Theater Reaching Young People, I think mm-hmm. is the acronym. Well, let's have a little song. This is Blue Christmas with Audra Sergal, Rashara Knight and Meredith Musgrove Shaw. We're just getting all the microphones into position so we don't blast it too loudly. And off we go. I'll have a blue Without you, I'll be so blue. Just thinking 
about you Decorations of red On a green Christmas tree Won't be the same, dear If you're not here with me And when those blue Snowflakes start falling That's when those blue Memories start calling You'll be doing all right With your Christmas of white But I have a blue Blue Christmas with Audra Sergal on piano, Rashara Knight on vocals and Meredith Musgrove Shaw on guitar. The upcoming Cabaret for a Cause night is on December the 9th at the Boone History and Culture Centre, which means, Audra, that you get to play the actual blind Boone piano that yes. was custom made for him by the Chickering Piano Company in 1891. Yes. Custom made because Boone had broken other pianos by playing with such force. Yes. So what is it like playing that piano? Audra? I always say she is serious business and I have genderized that piano for my own thing because she's so tough that I like to think of her as a her, but that's okay. Okay, whatever gender she wants to be, right, or they want to be, but um, it's got a really wonderful bass tone, but actually a really light, kind of sparkly upper tone. So my favorite thing to do on the blind boom piano is to play as low as I can. So I ended up writing the last time I did a solo concert out there. I wrote things that were in that low register just so I would get to have that like warmth and richness. But she she requires work. I mean, it, will, it feels like I'm, I sit a little higher. I have to dig in a little deeper. And even watching, like, Sutu Forte play it and watching my friend Travis play it, watching them having to just, we all have to just kind of hunker down because it really is, it's a heavy-weighted piano. It's beautiful and it's amazing. 
In the 1950s, the piano was housed in the music room at Douglas High School and there were stories about ghostly melodies emanating from the piano late at night. Do you feel the shiver of pianists of Christmas past when you play it? <laughs> I'm sorry, what did you just say? <laughs> did I not enunciate pianists? <laughs> Oh, I love that. I didn't know anything about that with the with the blind moon piano. I love that. Does it feel like there are It feels there like there's a great in the energy machine. there. You mm-hmm. know, it's always just a treat, you know. Um the executive director Chris Campbell will have me come out and play for cocktail hours and things like that and I'm always like, "Ooh, you know." Are your fingers sore afterwards? I definitely feel a little more fatigued, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not a heavy player though, so I'm not a big classical player. You know, I don't like hang out with Brahms all the time. So um, I'm probably different than per se, you know, some of the people who do that kind of work. Now, Rashara, you are singing Santa Baby at the concert on December the 9th. So I thought we'd play a little musical quiz game, which we're calling Know Your Santa Baby. We have (laughs) spliced together four recordings of Santa Baby by four different artists. And your job collectively, it doesn't have to just be Rashara, is to name the artists. Take it away, Mike. Baby, slip a sable under the tree for me. Being an awful good girl, Santa baby, and hurry down the chimney tonight. Santa buddy, a 65 convertible to steal. Michael Buble. Buble, that was what I got. Yeah, Buble. I'll Correct. wait up for you, Correct. dear. Santa baby. Eartha Kid. So hurry down Name that tune in two. <laughs> that was awesome. So we had, yes, we had the first one was Taylor Swift. Oh. Country oh, version. Okay. The second one was Ma- Madonna <laughs> doing her, her <laughs> Betty Boop version. Okay. The third one was... Michael, Michael Bublé, Bublé or Mickey, Mickey Bubble as we call him. <laughs> Mickey Bubble. <laughs> I love it. And the fourth one was, of course, the legendary Eartha Kitt, who was the one who recorded it originally, I think, in the early 1950s. So with so many Santa babies to choose from, what kind of Santa baby are you going to deliver on December the 9th, Rashara? Oh, <laughs> I mean, quite honestly, I... The reason why I was able to name Eartha Kitt so fast is that's the one that I listen to most, <laughs> mostly. So it will probably be some combination of Eartha Kitt and Roshara Knight that shows up on December 9th. That's so fun. I, I would see that show. Uh-huh. I would see that show too. We would just come just for that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. She has definitely the most mellow version. Mm-hmm. I think it is my favorite too. But you're you're much more kind of hearty than mellow. I am. You have to kind of reel in the Roshara and let it's, your inner Eartha Kitt out. Yeah. Yes, it's going to take a lot of work. I need to work on like my purring and, uh, and a really fast vibrato. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Meredith, everyone on the roster is doing one solo, and of all the songs available, you chose "Blue Christmas" for your solo. Yes. Why was that? Well, partially for the hair, right? Um, I do have an Elvis. I have an Elvis sneer. I can 
get that going. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I haven't figured out exactly what look I'm going for, right? So, uh, Shara's all about, you know, how she sounds, and I'm like, how am I going to look? Because the sound, we all kind of get left behind. People walk out going, oh my gosh, Shara was on point, and the rest of us are like, what can I do? Put some sparkles on it. Throw my hair up and try to, try to, you know, soak up some of the sunshine that Miss Shara puts out. Oh my gosh. Um, and plus, I just like Blue Chris. I mean, it's such a fun song, right? Because it's one of those songs kind of like Santa Baby where you can do a kind of high lovely version of Blue Christmas that sounds bluesy or you can do a uh, 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 uh. you can really get in there you know so it's, it's would you of, be getting in there I probably will be getting in there we're doing it a lot lower than Shara did yeah, it today we're doing a lot lower, so, yeah. so we will we will bring some Elvis to the building so Audra some of the people you you have in the lineup are Nolly Moore Ed Hansen Trent Rash Robin Anderson Jordan Isgriggs how did you decide who would sing what and were there any tussles where two people were like no I'm doing Blue Christmas no I'm doing Blue Christmas <laughs> actually it was Meredith and I deciding oh. who wanted to do Blue Christmas um, but she said that she wanted I'm like you can have it and I'll do this, this little sleigh ride version that I have but actually I we decided Rashara and I decided as directors who the cast would be for this one mainly because we knew that in the past sometimes we've had 20 singers and for the for this time of year and specifically this concert it felt like that wasn't going to be something we could make manage in the time frame of the holidays so we picked people that we knew were there consistently throughout multiple shows so we picked the cast and then I just put out an email and said send me what you want to do and we got really lucky there were only a couple I mean Nolly was like Trent picked all my favorites so you know <laughs> and so we but we ended up everyone found one and that that part worked out really well Tell me about the Merry Misfit Carolers. That was an idea put together by Brandon Sankpill where he wanted to have some of the maybe more hammy of our folks uh, come what? together and just do a little bit of caroling that they'll come out and you don't know what they're going to do. So they're just Merry Misfits. And shout out to the Merry Misfits. Exactly, exactly <laughs> which will be Ed Hansen, Roshara, Meredith, and David Mack. David yeah. Mack's fine. Thank you. I was like, I don't have a list in front of me. I'm going to forget somebody. Well, and I think of all of us, David is the most hammy. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Let's have another little song that's going to be in. Is this going to be in the show? It is going to be in the show. It's called I've Got My Love to Keep Me Warm, which when Audra sent it to me, I thought she was just kind of giving me a heads up about what a Thanksgiving day was going to be. <laughs> Not knowing that it was a song. So this is with uh, Meredith and Audra. Off you go, ladies. We just decided this arrangement last night, like two days ago. <laughs> The snow. Oh, wait. No, I'm sorry. I'm starting over. Yeah. Sorry. Because <laughs> we're singing it low. Right. The snow is snowing. The wind is blowing. But I can weather the storm. What do I care how much it may storm? I've got my love to keep me warm. Remember a worse December. Just watch those icicles, watch them form. What do I care if icicles fall? I've got my love to keep me warm. Off with my overcoat, off with my gloves. I need no overcoat. I'm burning with love. My heart's on fire. 
the flame grows higher. So I will weather the storm. What do I care how much it may storm? I've got my love to keep me. I've got my love to keep me. I've got my love to keep me warm. <laughs> I've got my love to keep me warm with Audra on piano and vocals and Meredith on vocals. Audra, amidst all the concerts and vocal teaching, you also have a new single coming out, I believe. I do. I do. Tell us about that. Um, so as I kind of joked about earlier, this year's been um, kind of a really big year of transition for me. I lost a friend last November, right before the holidays. One of my one of my like people, and then um, kind of had a year of change personally. Sold a house, moved, bought a house, you know, divorced, all that stuff. And so I started writing this single last solstice, and then I kind of finished it this year. And so it's a solstice song, but it's really about it's about love, it's about loss. It's called the beauty of this life, and it's just about when we do gather and we have people close to us just cherishing those times. And so I thought it'd be nice to release it around solstice and also a really great Christmas present for my mom. So I had to get in the studio and do it. How do people get it? Um, it'll be on all major platforms on December 13th. It will drop in so you can get on iTunes, you can get on Spotify, you can get on YouTube. However you listen to your music, it'll be there. December the 13th is a Friday. It is. Mm-hmm. And we have a show on the Friday, so maybe if one found their way to Speaking of the Arts, we could play it on the I show. I would love that. I will send you all of the things. <laughs> Thank you. And Rashara, you are also on stage tonight at the Blue Note for the 43rd anniversary of the band's The Last Waltz Farewell Concert. Tell us who you will be tonight. I will be Mavis Staples tonight. Yeah, I will. Uh-huh. Yes, you will. I'm shivers. I'm really excited. Is it just one song or do you get to do multiple songs as Mavis? Um, I will be singing a couple of songs. I will be um, doing a couple of the verses and the wait. And I will also be singing Georgia on my mind. So you are often called upon to perform as powerhouse female singers like Aretha Franklin, Mavis Staples. And I wondered, what do you mostly focus on to sound like them? Is it their phrasing? Is it their tonal qualities? Their mannerisms? Like, what is hardest to get right? You know, I really try my best to not sound like any one person. <laughs> because, I mean, it's really easy to get caught up in that. I try to put my own twist or spin on anything that I I sing when we are talking about like those amazing powerhouse vocalists that exist. I usually try to focus mostly on breath support and tone depending (laughs) on what the song may bring. So, you know, I, I I will listen to a lot of the songs that they sing and how they sing them um, so that like I'm not completely off base and people aren't booing me because it's not like what did you do to our song we wanted to hear it this way but I also try to (laughs) (laughs) I'm so tickled by the idea of people booing you (laughs) (laughs) I don't want it to happen I don't think it can (laughs) but yeah you know so I'll listen to this song to make sure that I have a good idea of what it sounds like generally but then from there I kind of take it my own way and put my own spin on it to make sure that it's still authentically me but also still the song that people want to hear and so if Mavis Staples said Rashara I want you to do a duet with me but you have to be me as well would you say oh I'll be there in a heartbeat or like oh, I'm washing my hair that night sorry Maeve I mean it's Mavis Staples what <laughs> it's like yes 
damn. I, I told you, I, 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 you, you know, I, I just said that it's hard for me to say no. I definitely would not say no to Mavis Staples. <laughs> Thank you so much to my second act guest today, Songbirds, Audra Sergal, Rashara Knight and Meredith Musgrove Shaw. You can hear them all in concert at the Boone History and Culture Centre on Monday, December the 9th, when they perform a very vintage Christmas together with the rest of the cabaret for a cause singers. Tickets for the evening cost $20, the proceeds from which will benefit the Blind Boone Piano Concert Series, as well as creating a scholarship for trips, theatre reaching young people in memory of Josh Friedrich. You can find tickets online at boonhistory.org. Thank you, ladies. Thank, Thank you. You are listening to Speaking of the Arts, and before we hand the airwaves over to Terry Gross and Fresh Air, I hear a list of arts events coming up. They would like to find their way onto your calendars. This evening at 6pm, award-winning thriller writer Alan Eskins is at Skylock Bookshop to talk about his new book, Nothing More Dangerous, which is set in the fictional town of Jessup, Missouri. As this week marks the 43rd anniversary of The Last Waltz, the band's famed farewell concert, the Blue Note is hosting the Fried Crawdaddies as the band, along with a cast of special guests, including the lovely Rashara Knight as Mavis Staples. Tonight's show starts at 8.30 and $10 gets you in. And at Rose Music Hall, the monthly Pints and Punchlines comedy night is on stage tonight at 9pm for a $3 cover charge. On Saturday, there is a pop-up art show slash art market at Artworks, which is on Walnut Street, featuring locally made art that's all for sale. And Saturday evening, Talking Horse Productions' long-form improv troupe, The Stable Boys, will be celebrating Thanksgiving with a show called Stable Scraps, a celebration of awkward family fun. Tickets are $10, but I do believe they are sold out, so you'll be getting returns only, and that show starts at 7.30. Monday evening, Mizzou Brass and the University of Missouri Brass Choir perform a holiday brass concert at the Missouri United Methodist Church at 7pm. Tickets are $10. Tuesday evening, the Trans-Siberian Experience, The Prophecy, will be at Jesse Hall at 7pm as part of the University Concert Series season. Tickets start at $39 for that concert. On Wednesday afternoon, there is a reception at Columbia College's Hardwick Gallery for an exhibit called Architectonic Contemplations. I had to practice saying that. By ceramic artist Veronica Watkins. The reception starts at 4.30 and is free and open to all. In Macon, Maples Rep Theatre opens their production of the comedy Every Christmas Story Ever Told, and then some. Showtime is 7.30, tickets start at $24, and the show continues through December the 15th. And at Rose Music Hall next Wednesday, singer-songwriter Dalton Domino performs at 8pm, and tickets are $10. Thursday afternoon next week, the 5th of December, from 3 till 4pm, artist Greg Edmondson will be giving a talk at Columbia College's Larson Gallery about his art exhibit called Living Like Animals, Paintings from a Truly Wild Place, which is on display until January the 3rd, and Greg will be on Speaking of the Arts on December the 13th. At Columbia Entertainment Company, next Thursday is opening night for the two-person play about romance, loss and overcoming prejudice called Last Train to Nybrock. Playtime is 7.30 and Thursday night tickets are just $10 and that show runs for two weekends. At Talking Horse Productions, it is also opening night for the comic opera and antique carol adapted from Dickens' A Christmas Carol by the late founder and conductor of the Missouri Symphony Orchestra, Hugo Vianello. Tickets are $15 and the show starts at 7.30 and continues for two weekends. 
Productions. And finally, in Jefferson City, Capital City Productions opens Plaid Tidings next Thursday. Dinner theatre tickets are $38 and doors open at 6pm and the show continues for three weekends. You have been listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia with me, Diana Moxon, and my good friend and sound engineer, Mike Hagan. We'll be back next week with more news, views and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. Until then, stay arty, Columbia. Thank you.